0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. We're going to go ahead and get started with our second hour. If you remember, I had asked you to write a summary of the Old Testament, and I got two. One of them was for my wife, and I, she did that <laughs> without any exhortation from me, and I was very happy about that, and she did a good job. Milton Hall did the other one. He, he's not feeling well this morning, so they weren't able to be here. And I've not read his yet, but I'm, you still have time. You know, it's, it's not an assignment anyway, and it's not a deadline. I do think it's a really good exercise. Beth, wouldn't you agree it was a good exercise for yourself? No, the, the question, basically, is to write a summary, half a page to a page, of the storyline of the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, I'm going to give you mine in my presentation. You can't just copy it and send it to me. <laughs> but I wanted to ask the question, before we went for through Old Testament survey, if you can think back to when we started, how many of you felt like you already had a pretty good handle on the storyline of the Old Testament? Okay. Two or three. How many of you feel like the class has helped you gain that? Okay, more. That's good. That's a good sign. Uh, I do think it's really important. We've taught this before and we'll probably do it again, you know, every couple of years. I don't know that many churches out there that are doing it. I remember when I was in seminary, we had two semesters of Old Testament survey and two of New Testament. And I thought, why in the world are we not teaching this in the church? Because to me, it was fascinating, especially i would not done that. I'm ashamed to say it, but I'd not read through the Old Testament, you know. Genesis to Malachi or in any kind of systematic way before I went to seminary and it made a huge difference and especially I saw things in the prophets and how later revelation built on earlier revelation that just really helps you understand the whole Bible and that's you know I'm kind of big on that here so I want us to have one final lesson this morning just to review what we've gone through it's going to look really similar to what we started out with on the first day of our class and some of the same slides, but I just want to try to reinforce what we've already taught. Before we go any further, we get <coughs> literature from Slavic Gospel Association. They send us this once a month. We get about three copies between my personal copy and two that come to the church, I think, and I put them out there in the foyer on the table across from the coffee table. I just would encourage you to take these whenever you want to. One of them is called a good news report and it just gives you information about what's going on uh, through Slavic Gospel Association but through local churches throughout the former Soviet Union, Belarus, Russia, Asia. And there's some really good information. It's written by people, nationals in country on the ground and SGA translates it into English. So you don't have to know Russian to read it. This one is a prayer calendar that comes also with this report. They send them once a month. It's 30 days of ways that you can pray for each one of these countries. So again, there's two or three copies out there now. And we just wanna encourage you to keep up with what's going on, especially with the missions and missionaries that we support. I forwarded an email from Walter Heaton this week. Uh, He's just been made assistant dean of their seminary, their school, largely because former assistant dean finished up his ministry there and came back to the States. So it's a, it's a lot of work, a lot of new work for Walter, so please be praying for him as well. Okay, how do we often read the Bible? How, how would you answer that question, if you remember that from the way that we... T- okay, that's how we should read it. Is that the way that most of your fellow believers that you know do read it? What do we do typically? We go with, the old, with the New Testament. Okay, read, read, read bits and pieces. I would say we often prioritize the New Testament and we read it first, and then we kind of fall back on the Old Testament for illustrative material or background. Certain parts of the Old Testament we really like, like the wisdom literature, Genesis, Psalms. But how many of you systematically read through the Old Testament? You can do it easily over the course of a year. If you read through three or four chapters, you can read through the whole Bible in a year. It's a really good exercise. And if you prioritize the New Testament, if you do it to the extreme, like covenant theology does, you basically say, well, the Old Testament, that's types and shadows and figures. Now that Christ has come, we have the final revelation, which in a sense is true. And we want to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. That's a mistake. We read the Bible in the order, in the progress of Revelation that God gave it to us in. And if, depending on which one of those that you choose, whether you prioritize the New Testament, read the Old Testament through that lens, or you start in Genesis and read Revelation like Andre said, you're going to come to different conclusions and different convictions, especially with regard to uh, Israel and God's program for Israel. So, This is the way that we want to read it. We see it as one book, the Word of God, and we start in Genesis and proceed to Revelation. The New Testament authors assume that you're familiar with the Old Testament as they write their works. So it's very important that we do that. This book was making its rounds recently, and uh, I'm about halfway through it. It's an excellent book. It's really clear. I think one of the easier ones to understand is called He Will Reign Forever, a Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God. And what Michael Vlock does in this book is start in Genesis and go to Revelation and trace the concept of the kingdom in particular. Now this is not something you're gonna read in a couple of days. You read it over time. Just read maybe a chapter a day or, or less, but it's really well done. I just would encourage you to consider adding that to your library. <clears throat> alright let's talk a little bit about the different ways between the Hebrew canon and the English canons. Matt's made clear to us in his teaching it's the same books they're arranged differently and Christ actually speaks to the way they're arranged in the Hebrew canon in Luke 24. You remember the setting here he's already made the uh, journey with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and After he gave them bread and opened their eyes to see who he was, he disappeared from them, and they made their way immediately back to Jerusalem, and the eleven disciples were there with others, and Christ appeared to them. And here's what he said. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Now the acronym that we used is called Tanakh. And if you'll notice carefully there, the T and the N and the K are in bold and then the A's are just supplied. But Tanakh stands for, what does the T stand for? Torah. Torah Torah is just another name for the books of Moses or the law or the Pentateuch. That's what Christ is talking about when he says the law of Moses. He's not just talking about Exodus 19 through 24 and the Mosaic Law, he's talking about the whole of the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. <clears throat> I can't stress enough how important those books are. They provide the foundation for the rest of the Bible, and we're going to look at that more in a little bit, but uh, really important to be familiar with Genesis through Deuteronomy and to recognize that it is a continuous story from Genesis to Deuteronomy, where one book ends, the other one just picks up. What's the end stand for in Tanakh? Nevuim. That's the Hebrew word for prophets. Uh, the canon is divided up into former and latter prophets, the former being Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. In our Bible, Samuel and Kings are two books, but they're combined in the Hebrew canon. The latter prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Daniel is not considered part of the prophets in the Hebrew canon. He's in the writings. And the writings are, what is the K word? Ketubim. Ketubim, good. That's basically everything else. All the wisdom literature, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, the Book of Ruth is in the writings, and Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. What What was the purpose of the writings in particular? Matt talked about this. Exactly. To encourage the remnant who were in exile uh, and help them know how to live, help them to know that God's presence was with them, help them in the case of Daniel to recognize Yeah, there is a return after 70 years after Jeremiah prophesied that, but it's really 77s of years that the plan of God is going to be ultimately consummated. All right, so that's the Hebrew canon. What about the English canon? I recognize that that's the Bible that we're dealing with, uh, except for Matt. He reads straight out of the Hebrew, I imagine. But the The visions within the English canon are, again, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, the foundation for the rest of Scripture. Uh, It relates the formation of the nation of Israel. Uh, Four of the covenants that God makes with Abraham and his descendants are in the Pentateuch. That alone is enough reason to be thoroughly familiar with it. Then what we call the historical books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They, again, just continue the story of the development, ascent, decline, exile, and partial restoration of the nation of Israel. And then what would be the last division in our English canon? Well, I say the last. Apart from Okay, the, the prophets are the very last. The wisdom literature, including the Song of Solomon, is in there. And I don't mean in any way to diminish the wisdom literature. It's extremely important. It's always relevant from the day it was first written to our own day. It's the wisdom of God uh, through these, largely through Solomon, but through other writers as well. And... Uh, I'm not diminishing that, but it doesn't advance the storyline of Israel. And that's really what we're concentrating on is the storyline of the Old Testament. So the last one would be the prophets. Uh, We divide them up into major and minor only because of, well, it's just a designation that we use in our English canon. Uh, Minor prophets is not in any way to diminish the significance of it. And Matt went through the fact that if you're looking at the 12 as a whole, as you should, then it's not minor at all. But when people say minor prophets, they're not looking at it that way. They're talking about the length of the individual books, and that's the only reason they're called minors. It's shorter, just shorter in length. Major prophets being Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is thrown in there in that section as well, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Daniel's always a puzzle to me why it's not included in the prophets in the Hebrew canon because it's very prophetic, but... uh, the explanation I usually hear is he wasn't called and commissioned as a prophet the way that Isaiah and Jeremiah were. He definitely had revelations made to him, and he had the ability to interpret dreams from God. But uh, he was a statesman more than a prophet. Uh, I don't know how well that exclamation, explanation holds up, but <clears throat> that's what, what typically is said. The Mount Prophets, also known as the Twelve, as Matt taught us so well the last couple of weeks, are to be read as one book. Uh, not, not to say that each individual book doesn't have its own message, but there's uh, themes and a, a, an argument or storyline that works its way across the Twelve books of the Twelve as well. All right, so how do all these books integrate together? The Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, develops the stories of the patriarchs and Moses, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Priestly, and Deuteronomic covenants. And not everybody says that Deuteronomy has a covenant. I would argue that the book of Deuteronomy is a covenant document. And it's uh, renewing the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, with the new generation that's about to enter the Promised Land. The historical books follow. In those books, we move from a theocracy where God was the king he had his priests that mediated between him and the people. Uh, he had judges that he had to send when the people sinned. And uh, he eventually became oppressed, became idolatrous. They were regional judges, military deliverers, really, that delivered the people from oppression, and then that cycle would start over. start over. That went ultimately to a monarchy, and then that monarchy went into exile And there was a partial restoration uh, in the Old Testament time, but the prophets also spoke of an ultimate restoration that would come at the end of days. The Vedic covenant occurs in the historical books, and then we have (coughs) the prophets. Uh, Now, it's important to recognize that they're not, let me get my laser pointer here, They're not continuing out here, the ministry of the prophets. They're actually ministering to the nation during the time of the historical books. I still think it's profitable to read them together after you've read the historical books, but some people would argue, well, it's actually a good idea to integrate it as you read through the Old Testament. That's fine, but you just want to make sure either way that you read that you're really focusing on the consistent message of the prophets and that it is a very consistent message. Yes? Do you know of a resource that would, that would help know that, like can this chapter of Kings read this prophet? There is uh, Bible reading plans that do that. I think if you just Google integrated reading of the Bible, you should be able to find one. I'll try to look and, and if you don't find one, let me know and I'll see if I can send you one. But I've, I've seen Bible reading plans that do that. Of course, the wisdom literature goes as far back as Job who would have been a character during the time of the patriarchs uh, all the way through to Solomon's day. So <clears throat> that's just kind of how the books integrate with each other, order-wise and, and time-wise. All right. I'm throwing all this up there on one slide. We worked through this uh, maybe a couple of times early in our session on the Old Testament survey. But you can see how... you. You basically, you can summarize these longer books in the Pentateuch to fairly concise messages. First four events of Genesis 1 through 11, I know you're familiar with, from creation, fall, flood, and Babel. And then the last part of the book of Genesis is four key characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The Abrahamic covenant dominates. It's made initially with Abraham. It's affirmed to both Isaac and Jacob. And obviously, Jacob becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. In Exodus, we have God's work to deliver. Well, we have as we go down to at the end of Genesis, this family goes down into Egypt. There, God multiplies them into this great nation. He ultimately delivers them from Egyptian bondage through Moses. They journey from Egypt down to Sinai. And there, God enters into covenant with them. He gives them his law. He's already redeemed them as his people. He designs a system of worship for them, and they receive instructions on building the tabernacle and the anointing of priests, the necessary sacrificial offerings. There's the golden calf incident, which is really shades of things to come. And, you know, even as they're going down from Egypt to Sinai, there's difficulty But that only gets worse uh, with the golden calf incident and when they leave from Sinai to make their way up to uh, the promised land. These are not a faithful people. And God knew that uh, from the very beginning. 35 through 40 gives the construction of the tabernacle. The book of Leviticus takes place while they're still there at Sinai. It's largely a book for the necessary offerings and the duties of the priest. Uh, spelling out purity, atonement, sanctification, the feast. And what's the purpose of the feast? It's really a dual purpose. I think we talked about this some. Just to celebrate the Lord bringing, bringing either harvest or, or prosperity or whatever to the land. Okay. So one is very much tied to the land, the agriculture of the land. And it's a recognition of you know early harvest and late harvest. The other is these feasts are tied to things that God has done for Israel, for bringing them out of Egyptian bondage, for the time that they dwelt in booths while they were in the wilderness. Uh, What's the other ones? I'm trying to think of the other events that are tied to the feast. but just recognize, I think we even gave out a chart on the feast that show what that dual significance is, but those are spelled out in the book of Leviticus. And then Leviticus 26 and 27, uh, 26 in particular, a very important chapter. Uh, It's in the third book of the Bible, and it lays out the plan for the rest of the Old Testament. We'll read that passage again. I know we read it a bunch already, but Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30 spell out what's going to happen. And sure enough, as you keep reading through the Old Testament, that's exactly what happens. Numbers describes Israel's wilderness wanderings, first from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. Remember from Kadesh Barnea, they sent the 12 spies up into the land. 10 of them came back and said, well, only two of the 12 said, yeah, we can take this land. They all agreed that it was a great land and incredible and exactly what God had told them it would be. 10 of the 12 didn't think they could take it because of the strength of its current inhabitants. Because of that, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That that generation wandered in the wilderness for another 37, 38 years uh, until they died out and a new generation was the ones that were going to be the ones to enter the promised land. And then from 20 to 36, uh, there's a description of the journey up from Kadesh Barnea to the plains of Moab. Deuteronomy picks right up there in the plains of Moab uh, there's a review from Sinai to Moab in chapters 1 to 4. There's an exposition of the law, which looks very similar <coughs> to Exodus 19 through 24. That's in Deuteronomy 5 through 26. 27 through 30 lays out the curses or the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience, And what's, especially in Deuteronomy chapter 28. What's intriguing to me, and again, I think it's a hint of things to come, is there's a lot more time and ink spent on the curses than there are the blessings. I think it was a genuine choice. They had the option to obey or disobey, and they would have gotten all those blessings if they had obeyed. But you get the feeling early on that they're not going to obey, and they're going to be cursed. And what is the ultimate curse going to be? Exile. Taken out of the land. And then the final ministry of Moses in 31 to 34. Again... That's the storyline of the Pentateuch. Very important to understanding God's plan for the whole Bible uh, or for for all of the time of redemption. But it's also very important for understanding why we believe in a future restoration for the nation of Israel. And why, well, it helps you when you're dealing with somebody in the church that doesn't believe in that. Uh, It's laid out very clearly in the Pentateuch. So, I talked about or mentioned these key passages in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30. I want us to read those again. The first one is Deuteronomy 26 verses one through 16. If you had to pick one passage that was in the Old Testament that summarizes the storyline of the Old Testament, you'd be hard pressed to come up with one better than Leviticus 26. We won't read the whole chapter. But let's first read verses 1 through 16. Now, verses 1 through 2 is a prohibition against idolatry and a command to keep the Sabbath. It really is a summary of keeping the whole law of God. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. Now, Certainly they had seen a lot of that in Egypt and Canaan, the land of Canaan, was full of that kind of idolatry. God is making clear to them that he has made a claim on them as his people. They're not to worship any other gods, no other, no idols. They're to worship him alone. You shall keep my sab- Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So again, that's a summary He's not saying, yeah, you need to pay attention to the Sabbath and don't worry about anything else. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, and he's emphasizing that sign really as a, a stand-in for keeping all the commandments. And then he goes on to spell out the promises of blessing if they did that. Verse 3, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit That's agricultural prosperity. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering. Your grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. Notice how the land is so important. And I make that point because people say, well, yeah, that was all the Old Testament. The land's not talked about at all in the New Testament. Why is that such a big deal now? Well, my reply is, why does it need to be talked about in the New Testament? You're you're showing your colors in that you think that anything in the Old Testament is not valid anymore. It's extremely important. It's the stage upon which God blesses the nation of Israel, and Israel's by the the means by which all the other nations are gonna to come to know him as the true God. I shall also grant peace in the land that you might lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. See how often land is mentioned. So peace is the promise there. But you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a thousand sorry. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Israel will be elevated amongst all the other nations of the world. That's not happened yet. You can make an argument that happened during Solomon's time. That was the height of their glory as a nation. Certainly not true today, even though they're back in the land. So I'll turn toward you, make you fruitful, and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. So not only will the land be fruitful, but you as a people will be fruitful as well. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. That is the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. I frankly don't understand why people don't think the Mosaic Covenant is an everlasting covenant. It's made with Israel. Uh, The goal of the Mosaic Covenant was God's presence with them as a people, All the stuff that's spelled out in the Mosaic Covenant shows up in the prophets in the Millennial Kingdom. Yes, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant today. We're not Israel. We're the church, and we're not under the law. And Paul's super clear about that. But the covenant itself is still with Israel, and I would argue they're still under the curses of the covenant today. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you should not be their slaves, and I broke the bars of your yoke, and made you walk erect but if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinance so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant I in turn will do this to you and when it goes on from there I won't read the rest of it is to spell out the covenant curses the fact that they'll be disciplined their sky will be shut up like bronze their Land won't be fruitful or productive. They as a people won't be fruitful and productive. And he's doing that basically to discipline them, to bring them to repentance, and ultimately to restore them as a people. So I want to skip down now to verses 43 through 46 that spell out what that restoration will look like. For the land shall be abandoned by them, Again, this is a prediction of the exile. that's going to happen hundreds of years later, an exile that will last 70 years. And shall make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, shall be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them. Nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. So despite the fact that Israel is unfaithful throughout her history and indeed experiences these curses, God doesn't forsake them. He doesn't give up on them as a people. He disciplines individual generations just like he did with the generation that first came out of Egypt. But ultimately, he is going to fulfill his promises and his covenant to his people. Verse 45, I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. So that's Leviticus 26. Let's look now at Deuteronomy 30. We'll look at verses 1 to 10. Keep in mind that before Deuteronomy 30, and especially back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he's done the same thing. He spelled out what the promises are of blessing for obedience to the covenant, and what the promises of curses are for disobedience. And again, the curses in that chapter in particular are a lot longer than the blessings. Chapter 30, verse 1. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he'll bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. That's already happened, right? I mean, they they came back after 70 years. They're in the land now. Has it happened? Well, it's happened that they're they're all in Israel now since 1948. Okay. But um... let me keep reading and see if that helps us decide if this is already taking place. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and the produce of your ground. For the Lord your God, for the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers if you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul now certainly they're back in the land and they're they're trying to obey they're trying to obey according to the Mosaic covenant I say that I mean they observe the Sabbath Uh, they have a lot of different things that they go through in obedience to Old Testament commands They're even trying to restore the priesthood and the temple. But what is Israel's present status? They are being persecuted. Say again? They are being persecuted. Okay, they're being persecuted. Uh, They're not uh, head over their enemies at this point. What else? What, What does the New Testament say about their status? They're in unbelief. Their hearts are hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And the, new, the, the latter prophets pick up on what Deuteronomy 30 says as far as future restoration, productivity of the land, uh, they being the head of their enemies, not being subject to them anymore. That's what the latter prophets are talking about. Virtually almost every one of them says something about that. And that hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for that to happen. Yes, they're back in the land, but they're back in the land in unbelief in their Messiah. And they can't keep the law right now, right? They don't even have a temple. They don't have a priest. And what the, new te- what the latter prophets see is a future temple with priests and, and with them obeying the statutes that Moses is giving them in the plains of Moab. That's, that's where it's all going to end up at the end. Yes. Isn't it the uh, current boundaries of Israel are much smaller than what will eventually be? Yes. Right. They've not taken the land to the fullness of the biblical boundaries. Okay. That's right. And, I, you know, beyond that, the other thing that you have to recognize is that they've yet to live in the land according to the blessings that God has promised them. And that's because of their own disobedience. Right, again, as you read through the rest of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 34, you see that that story plays out exactly the way it was described. So, storyline of the whole Old Testament, this was my attempt to do this. After the four introductory events of Genesis 1 through 11, God calls Abram, makes a covenant with him, promising him land, seed, and blessing. Not only personal blessing, but he would be a blessing to all the other families of the earth. That covenant is affirmed to both Isaac and Jacob. Jacob becomes the father of the 12 tribes. After bringing them down to Egypt, God greatly multiplies them. He delivers them from the Egyptian bondage through plagues, through demonstrations of his power, both to show his powers, the true God, and the powerlessness of the gods of Egypt. And he does that so that he will... he has a claim on Israel at that point. They, they owe him their lives. And, and that's what he's asking for. He's asking for their complete loyalty and obedience. He enters into covenant with them at Sinai, promising blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And he establishes that system of worship with the construction of the tabernacle, the designation of the priests, the required sacrifices, the celebratory feast. Because of their ongoing disobedience, the original generation wanders in the wilderness for 40 years until they die out. Even Moses, because of his disobedience, is excluded from being able to go into the promised land. Remember, he goes up to Mount Nebo and looks over and sees it, but he can't go in. Yes. And all that was due to him striking the rock when he was told to talk speak to, the to it. That's right. Yeah, and and I think his attitude had a lot to do with that you know he was angry and he said something along the lines of you rebels shall we bring forth water from you out of this rock and it almost it sounded like he was doing it instead of god and it may seem hard you know i mean moses did a lot of good things and he was very faithful as god's servant but that was the penalty uh, I can see his frustration yes absolutely no question about it Moses reviews all that the Lord has done for Israel on the plains of Moab and then dies. And Joshua takes over. He becomes, this is historical books, becomes le- the leader of Israel. He leads the people in taking the land. Remember, there were three campaigns. He came straight across the land first and divided it into north and south. And he had a southern campaign and then a northern campaign. And he broke all the major resistance from the enemies in the land. After that, Each tribe was given an allotment of land and they were responsible for going up and uh, driving out the Canaanites out of their particular allotment, which they failed to do completely. And that failure uh, caused the Canaanites to influence the Israelites instead of the other way around. This is the time of the judges. God sends regional judges to deliver the Israelites from their oppression and from their sin. And well, their sin really led to their being oppressed by their enemies. And then judge would be successful. They would worship Yahweh faithfully for a while. The cycle would start all over again. And it got worse every time. It was a downward spiral. And finally, the people got tired of that, and they said, Look, we want a king. We see all these other nations that have a king. We want one like that to go out and do battle for us. Remember, they're talking to Samuel when they say that. And Samuel pretty upset about that, rightfully so, and God says, give them a king. He said, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And we have to think about and square up a little bit the fact that there were kings promised in the very beginning in the Abrahamic covenant, but the reason they wanted one was not the right reason, and yet God is still going to use a king and a kingdom to accomplish his purposes. Saul is Israel's first king. He loses his reign due to disobedience. David is chosen by God as a man after God's own heart. And God enters into a covenant with him, promising him that he'll never lack a man to sit upon the throne. His son Solomon builds the temple, and Israel reaches the height of her glory under his rule. But that's very short-lived. And Solomon sins. He violates the very things that were spelled out in Deuteronomy 17 that a king was not supposed to do. Wasn't supposed to multiply foreign wives. He wasn't supposed to multiply horses, implying that he would depend on them rather than on God for victory. And he wasn't to multiply silver. Solomon did all those things. It's very explicit that he did those things in 1 Kings 11. And because of that, the foreign wives that he married led his heart away from the Lord, and the kingdom was divided as a result of his sin. Ten tribes go to the north, just two remain in the Southern Kingdom. Southern Kingdom is the Davidic line. Northern Northern Kingdom has no good kings and is taken captive by Assyria in 722 B.C. Southern Kingdom has a few good kings and bright spots along the way, but it's also consistently disobedient and taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 586. Yahweh was long-suffering with his people, but ultimately, as Matt made clear in his teaching, uh, he'd had enough, and he takes them out of the land, just as he said he would back in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 30. Now, again, I put the prophets in line here, but they're actually ministering during the times of the kings. God sent prophets all during this time, his spokesmen, to urge the people to repent and to come back to covenant faithfulness. But Israel failed to listen. Both kingdoms did. And both were taken into captivity through a day of the Lord. Not the ultimate day of the Lord. Matt told us about that last Sunday. But through uh, foreign enemies that the Lord used to punish his people. Now, there is a partial return of the people after 70 years. But Daniel's vision reveals that the times of the Gentiles will last much longer than that. These prophets also saw an ultimate future day of the Lord, still future to us. It's future to the New Testament writers in which Israel will be purified, restored to her land and restored to Yahweh through a new covenant. Just as we saw again in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30. Yahweh himself will ensure that Israel will fulfill the original role that he designed for them to be a witness to all the other nations of the earth and through their repentance and coming to know the Lord the nations will come to know the Lord ultimately all peoples worship the one true God in a new heavens and a new earth mentioned only briefly in the Old Testament Isaiah 66 talks about the creation of a new heavens and new earth but certainly described fully in uh, Revelation 21 and 22 this is a diagram that we use from um, Benware's book and I like it for the most part, I did slightly modify it. I think he made a mistake down there where it says priest and judges at the bottom. Uh, he has something else there. I think maybe theocracy again. Or Anyway, I just think that's a misprint. But it, I think the diagram overall is good. It shows the four covenants that are made. Uh, it, it doesn't show the Pentateuch, but it shows this, I'm sorry, it doesn't show the priestly covenant. It shows the Abrahamic Covenant. I filled in the Deuteronomic Covenant. Uh, It shows the Mosaic Law Code and the Davidic Covenant and the New Covenant. But you can see how the nation progressed there from the patriarchs to the theocracy to the monarchy to uh, the New Testament time period, well, the Restoration first, then the apostles and the church, and ultimately to the millennial kingdom in the future. The one of the other things that I added, again I'm I realize I'm making a hobby horse out of this, but the Mosaic Law Code does show up again. It shows up very clearly in the Millennial Kingdom. We're not under it now. New Testament is very clear about that. We're not Israel. We're the church. Law code's still in force. So that's the storyline of the Old Testament and I want us to look a little broadly now, more broadly, to see how understanding that storyline helps us understand the whole storyline of the Bible. And I know this is a diagram you've seen many times before, but you have this united kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon that splits because of Solomon's sin. Northern kingdom, it's ten tribes, is taken into captivity in 722 B.C. by Assyria. The southern kingdom by Uh, The Babylonians in 586 B.C. During this time, God sends prophets. They refuse to listen. Ultimately, there is no more king for Israel. And yet, the seed of David is preserved all the way through the intertestamental period, all the way down to the New Testament period. And who is the prophet that comes on the scene in the New Testament period? John the Baptist. What's his message? repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the kingdom he's talking about is what kingdom is it a new spiritualized kingdom that's that the Old Testament was just a shadow and type of no it's the same kingdom that the prophets talked about it's the same kingdom that they realized in their history before but with an ultimate Davidic ruler that will be able to lead the people in keeping the law in a way that no other king ever has. So that was John the Baptist's message. Get ready, for the kingdom is coming. That message was taken up by Christ first and then by his apostles. And what did it mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Did it come? Okay. In what sense was it at hand or imminent? the king was there it could have come they needed to repent and embrace the spiritual requirements of the kingdom there were spiritual requirements to be sure those just don't negate the physical blessings that come from the Lord along with spiritual blessings if they repent what was their response? they didn't repent not only did they not repent but the leaders of the nation said, this guy does what he does by the power of Beelzebub He's Satan. And what is Jesus' response to that? He starts teaching in parables. He's, he says, okay, if that's going to be your response, one, the kingdom's not going to come now. And even in the parables, you can tell it's being pushed off to a future day. And it's going to become more clear that that's the case in all of its Discourse. But two, I'm not going to give you any more truth. You've seen all that I've taught and the miracles that I've done and your response is as bad as it could be. I'm going to give truth now in parables that only those who already accept me and believe in me will understand. And they're going to get new truth, but your hearts are going to be hardened. You're going to be frustrated because you don't understand what these parables are all about. That's what's going on. Not only in Matthew's gospel, they're all collected together. A bunch of them are in Matthew 13, but in Mark and Luke as well. So that begins at the point at which Jesus turns to a parabolic ministry. Now, within this period of time, this triangle, is the church. It starts later than Jesus' parabolic ministry with the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And the church ends at the rapture. We're still waiting for that to happen. But after the rapture, God's plan turns back towards the nation of Israel. He takes them through a period of seven years of tribulation, uh, the last three and a half of which is led by a false Christ. And at the end of that period, he returns with us as the church and rules and reigns for a thousand years on the earth. And then comes what? New heavens and new earth. No more curse, no more sin, uh, eternal fellowship, eternal and unbroken fellowship with the true God. All right. This is just another diagram. You think about how Genesis 1 and 2 are two chapters in the Bible where sin has not yet been introduced. There in, uh, God's made the heavens and earth in six days he's made man and woman to rule over that creation everything is perfect it's paradise it only happens for two chapters and paradise is lost when man sins and the curse comes upon the earth what, what does God do about that well he floods the whole earth in Genesis 6-9 through 9. it's gotten so wicked in a pretty short period of time, that he basically wiped off the face of the earth and started over. After that, the Tower of Babel, they still refused. Now this is after a worldwide flood had come. They still refused to do what God commanded them to do in spreading out and conquering the earth and filling it. So he helped them. He helped them by confusing their languages and forced them to spread out. But he also began this plan in Genesis 12 by the calling of Abram that he's going to develop through the rest of the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. And again, Israel was the chosen nation by which the other nations were to recognize that the God that they worshiped was the true God. Well, Israel not only didn't obey God, did not keep covenant with God, but ultimately they crucified their own Messiah. They crucified the one that was to lead them in covenant obedience. And that was after all the warnings of the prophets. So at that point, well, shortly after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, something really new happens. What is it? Okay. The church is born with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And they're going to be the means now by which people are made right with God. Up to this point, it was through Israel. Even if you weren't a descendant of Abraham, the way that you came to know the living God was to join the house of Israel and to worship their God. Now, this new entity called the church is Jew and Gentile in one body. It's believing in Christ and his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to the true God. And the book of Acts records this transition from God working through the nation of Israel to God working through the church. Israel's still around, but they've become hardened. Most of the nation have not embraced their own Messiah. But then we get to Revelation 21 and 22. After Israel goes through this time of great uh, tribulation, after they recognize their Messiah, and they truly do repent at that point, they become the means by which all the other nations come to another true God. And we have a new heavens and new earth in two chapters, 21 and 22, which is largely a restoration of the way things were, only better, I would say, than Genesis 1 and 2 because there's no possibility of a fall. And as you read Genesis, I'm sorry, as you read Revelation 21 and 22, you can see very clear allusions back to Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I'm going to show a little more outside of Genesis 2 and outside of Revelation uh, 21 and 22. So I put 1 to 3 and 20 to 22. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. At the end, John saw a new heaven and a new earth. In the original creation, God gathered the waters together and called them seas. In the new earth, there is sea no longer. And the original seas, especially after the flood, Separated the nations, and there's no need for that anymore. In the original creation, he called the darkness night. There shall be no night in the new creation, new heaven, new earth. God made two great lights the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. The city has no need of the sun or the moon, the city there being the new Jerusalem in the new earth. God warned the man, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die, Genesis 2.17. But there shall no longer be any death in the new earth. God told the woman after their sin, I will greatly multiply your pain, Genesis 3.16. In the new earth, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. There was a curse that was brought upon the ground. It's very significant. I mean, that's what changed from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, is that God's creation was subjected to futility, is the way Paul says it in Romans 8. It was subjected in hope of a future restoration. But it's a curse that we're still operating under today, right? All of us are going to die unless we're here when Christ comes back. And the curse is still very much in effect today. But there shall no longer be any curse in the new earth. Satan appears as the deceiver of mankind in Genesis 3.1. Satan is cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 20. Man was driven away from the tree of life in Genesis 3.22-24. Why? What was the purpose of casting Adam and Eve out of the garden and guarding the way to the tree of life with a flaming sword? sinned so therefore they were going to die so they cannot participate in the tree of life until later. Okay. And and I think by implication that if they had taken of the tree of life in that state they would have forever been in their sin. Right. They would have been beyond redemption. Right. But as Andre noted the tree of life reappears in Revelation 22. It's fascinating. You've got this street and the river and the tree of life producing 12 different kinds of fruit. Now you think, well, what in the world? No tree does that today. It's a new creation. Everything. Well, there's certainly continuity with what happens today and with this creation, but there are different things in the new creation too. And that tree of life is for, not only for the fruit that is to be enjoyed and the life that that extends, but for, it says that the leaves are for the healing of the nations, sustaining of the nations with perpetual health. Man was driven from God's presence in Genesis 3.24 because of his sin. And what does Revelation 22, 4 and 5 say? They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads and they shall reign forever and ever. And the kingdom goes on. Not just in the millennial kingdom, not just in the thousand years on this earth, but there's a reign that continue, that continues into the new heaven and new earth. And keep in mind, that was the purpose. And Vlok does a really good job with this, of man from the very beginning was to rule and reign over the creation. Well, because of Christ as the second Adam, and because of what he's done to remove the curse. Uh, man now has that ability restored to him that's not to say that man doesn't do that now he does man still rules over the creation uh, when you go to the zoo you don't see human beings in the cages it's just the other animals that are in the cages man has even in the fallen state spread over the earth and multiplied and rules over the creation but it'll be very different in a new earth with no curse and no death, and an eternal fellowship with the living God. Okay. That's the completion of our Old Testament survey. If you've not written a summary, I would encourage you to do that for your own benefit. If you want to send it to me, you can. If you don't, that's okay, too. Uh, Next time, we're going to introduce the topic of eschatology. I think it comes at a good time for us. One, because... We've already looked at the covenants. We've already done the Old Testament survey, which has a lot of eschatology in it, are things that won't be fulfilled until the very end when Christ comes back. So it comes at a good time that way. Plus, selfishly, I'm planning to go to Croatia in the spring and teach eschatology again. I've been over there four or five times and taught in their school, and we had to stop when COVID hit but it'll help me uh, refresh my grasp of this material by teaching you. So we may do ecclesiology. I'm going to teach that over there as well after eschatology, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Any questions about anything that we've covered this morning or in Old Testament survey in general? All right. No meeting tonight or next Sunday evening. Is that right? that outreach on the 28th. So I'm entertaining the idea of maybe doing something that that Sunday night before as just a primer, a prepper. Okay. So it'd be be informal. Okay. I'll send out information. More details to follow on that for next Sunday. All right. Are there any books for the eschatology? Not really. I can I'll be glad to give you my notes. I mean, there's some systematic theologies that I will recommend but not one that will follow in the class necessarily anything we should read next week? no we'll just introduce the subject next week matt has announced we, we, it turns out we're not leaving for florida until after sunday so we will meet next sunday evening okay, sunday evening. okay. change in the schedule Yes. <laughs> yeah, we will meet next sunday at a normal 6 30 start time and that will be the finances class all right. I really enjoyed this morning. I, don't, I enjoyed doing this Old Testament survey, and I really think it's important. I think you have to better understand the New Testament. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for all of your word. We thank you for this plan of redemption that you've laid out for us. We recognize that it's uh, a growth a thing for all of us to grow in our understanding of what you've already done and what you are doing now and what you will do in the future and that you enlighten us um, through the course of our lives, our Christian lives, to understand this plan. But we recognize also that we have a responsibility to seek out what you've given us in your word and try to understand it. So thank you for uh, just giving us the opportunity to teach this again and for using your word to edify your people. And we just pray, uh, as David's taught us from Philippians 1, that we would conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, uh, that we would just grow in our understanding of all that you are and all that you've done and all that you're going to do. And that that would motivate us, uh, motivate us to live godly lives and to live in light of Christ's coming and to be effective witnesses now. The kingdom is ours now through Christ, but we look forward to the full manifestation of that kingdom when he comes. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.